You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Four Seasons and the Archangels. Lecture 1 is entitled The Michael Imagination. Today I would like first to remind you how events that take place behind the veil of appearance outside the physical sense-perceptible world can be described in pictorial terms. One has to speak in this way of these events but the pictures correspond throughout with reality. With regard to sense-perceptible events, we are living in a time of hard tests for humanity, and these tests will become harder still. Many old forms of civilization, to which people still mistakenly cling, will sink into the abyss, and there will be an insistent demand that mankind must find its way to something new. In speaking of the course that the external life of humanity will take in the near future, we cannot, as I have often said, arouse any kind of optimistic hopes. But a valid judgment as to the significance of external events cannot be formed unless we also consider the determining, directing, cosmic events that occur behind the veil of the senses. When we look out attentively with our physical eyes and our other senses at our surroundings, we perceive the physical environment of the earth and the various kingdoms of nature within it. This is the milieu in which comes to pass all that manifests as wind and weather in the course of the year. When we direct our senses toward the external world, We have all this before us. These are the external facts. But behind the atmosphere, the sun-illumined atmosphere, there lies another world, perceptible by spiritual organs, as we may call them. Compared with the sense world, this other world is a higher world, a world wherein a kind of light, a kind of spiritual light or astral light, spiritual existence and spiritual deeds shine out and run their course. And they are, in truth, no less significant for the whole development of the world and of mankind than the historical events in the external environment of the earth and on its surface. If anyone today is able to penetrate into these astral realms, wandering through them as one may wander among woods and mountains and find signposts at crossroads. He may find, in quotes, signposts there in the astral light, inscribed in spiritual script. But these signposts have a quite special characteristic. They are not comprehensible without further explanation, even for someone who can read in the astral light. In the spiritual world and in its communications, things are not made as convenient as possible. 
Anything one encounters there presents itself as a riddle to be solved. Only through inner investigation, through experiencing inwardly the riddle and much else, can one discover what the inscription on a spiritual signpost signifies. And so at this time, indeed for some decades now, but particularly at this time of hard trials for mankind, one can read in the astral light, as one goes about spiritually in these realms, a remarkable inscription. It sounds like a prosaic comparison, but in this case, because of its inner significance, it does not remain prosaic. Just as we find notices to help us find our way, and we find signposts even in poetic landscapes, we encounter an important spiritual signpost in the astral light. Time and time again, exactly repeated, we find there today the following message inscribed in highly significant spiritual script. Quote, o man, you shape it to your service. You display it according to the value of its substance in many of your products. Yet it will only make you whole when it reveals to you the exalted dominion of its spirit. Close quote. Injunctions of this kind, pointing to facts significant for mankind, are inscribed, as I have said, in the astral light, presenting themselves first as a kind of riddle to be solved, so that human beings may bring their soul forces into activity. Now let us con- contribute something to the solving of this inscription, really a simple inscription, but important for mankind today. Let us recall how, in many of our studies here, we have surveyed the course of the year. One first observes it quite externally. When spring comes, one sees nature sprouting and budding. One watches the plants grow and come to flower and sees how life everywhere springs up out of the soil. All this is enhanced as summer draws on. In summer it rises to its highest level. And then when autumn comes, it withers and fades away, and when winter comes, it dies into the bosom of the earth. This cycle of the year, which in earlier times, when a more instinctive consciousness prevailed, was celebrated with festivals, has another aspect also mentioned here. During winter, the earth is united with the elemental spirits. They withdraw into the interior of the earth, and live there among the plant roots, preparing for new growth, and among the other nature beings who spend the winter there. Then, when spring comes, the earth breathes out, as it were, its elemental being. The elemental spirits rise up as though from a tomb and ascend into the atmosphere. During winter they conformed to the inner order of the earth. But now, as spring advances, and especially when summer comes on, they open themselves to the order that is imposed upon them by the stars and the movements of the stars. When midsummer has come, then, out there, in the periphery of the earth, life surges among the elemental beings, who had spent the winter quietly and calmly, 
under the earth's mantle of snow. In the swirling and whirling of their dance they are governed by the reciprocal laws of planetary movement, by the pattern of the fixed stars, and so on. When autumn comes, they turn toward the earth. As they approach the earth, they become subject more and more to the laws of the earth, so that in winter they may be breathed in again by the earth, once more to rest there in tranquility. Anyone who can thus experience the cycle of the year feels that his whole human life is wonderfully enriched. Today and for some time past, a person normally experiences, though but dimly, half-consciously, only the physical etheric processes of the body taking place within his skin. He experiences his breathing, the circulation of his blood. Everything that takes its course outside, in wind and weather during the year, all that lives in the sprouting of the seed forces, the fruiting of the earth forces, the brilliance of the sun forces, all this is no less significant and decisive for the whole life of a human being, even though he is not conscious of it, than the breathing and blood circulation which goes on inside his skin. As the sun rises over any region of the earth, we share in what it brings out by means of its warmth and light. And when a person accepts anthroposophy in the right sense, not reading it like a sensational novel, but so that what it imparts fills his mind and heart, then he gradually educates himself, heart and soul, to experience all that goes on outside in the course of the year. Just as during a day we experience early freshness, readiness to work in the morning, then the onset of hunger and weariness in the evening, and just as we can sense the inner life and activity of the forces and substances within our skin, so by taking to heart anthroposophical ideas, entirely different from the usual descriptions of sense-perceptible events, we can prepare our souls to become open to the activities that go on outside in the course of the year. We can deepen more and more this empathy with sympathetic participation in the cycle of the year. And we can enrich it so that we do not live so cut off within our skin, letting the outer world pass us by. But on the contrary, we can enrich our experience so that we feel ourselves living in the blossoming of every flower, in the breaking open of the buds, in that wonderful secret of the morning, in the glistening of dewdrops, in the rays of the sun. In these ways we can get beyond the dull, conventional way of reacting to the outer world merely by putting on our overcoat in winter and lighter clothes in summer and taking an umbrella when it rains. When we overcome a prosaic attitude and learn to experience the interweaving activities, the ebb and flow of nature, only then do we really understand the cycle of the year. Then when spring passes over the earth and summer is drawing near, we will be heart and soul in the midst of it. We will perceive how the sprouting and budding life of nature unfolds. 
how the elemental spirits whir and whirl in a pattern laid down for them by planetary movements. And then in the time of high summer, we too will widen our experience to share in the life of the cosmos. Certainly this damps down our own inner life, but at the same time our summer experiences lead us out in a cosmic waking sleep, one might say, to enter into the activities of the planets. Today, generally speaking, people feel they can enter into the life of nature only in the season of growth, of germination and budding, flowering and fruiting. Even if they cannot fully experience all this, they have more sympathetic awareness of it than of the autumn season of fading and withering. But in truth, we deserve to rejoice in the season of spring growth only if we can enter also into the time when summer wanes and autumn approaches, the season of sinking down and dying that comes with winter. And if at midsummer we rise inwardly in a cosmic waking sleep with the elemental beings to the regions where planetary activity in the outer world can be inwardly experienced, then we ought also to sink ourselves down under the frost and snow mantle of winter so that we enter into the secrets of the womb of the earth during midwinter and we ought to participate in the fading and dying off of nature when autumn begins. If, however, we are to participate in this waning of nature, just as we do in nature's growing time, we must learn to experience the dying away of nature in our own inner being. For if a person becomes more sensitive to the secret workings of nature and thus participates actively in nature's germinating and fruiting, it follows that he will also livingly experience the effects of autumn in the outer world. But it would be comfortless for a human being if he could experience this only in the form it takes in nature, if he were to come only to a nature consciousness concerning the secrets of autumn and winter as he readily does concerning the secrets of spring and summer. When the events of autumn and winter draw on, when Michaelmas comes, he certainly must enter sensitively into the processes of fading and dying. But he must not, as he does in summer, give himself over to nature consciousness. On the contrary, he must then devote himself to self-consciousness. In the time when external nature is dying, he must oppose nature consciousness with the force of self-consciousness. And then the form of Michael stands before us again. If, under the impulse of anthroposophy, a person enters thus into the enjoyment of nature, the consciousness of nature, but then also awakes in himself an autumnal self-consciousness, the picture of Michael with the dragon will stand majestically before him, revealing in picture form the overcoming of nature consciousness by self-consciousness when autumn draws near. This will come about if humanity can experience not only an inner spring and summer, but also a dying, death-bringing inner autumn and winter. Then it will be possible for the picture of Michael 
with the dragon to appear again as a powerful imagination, summoning humanity to inner activity. For a person who, through present-day spiritual knowledge, wrestles his way through to an experience of this picture, it expresses something very powerful. For when, after St. John's tide, July, August, and September draw on, he will come to realize how he has been living through a waking sleep of inner planetary experience, in company with the earth's elemental beings, and he will become aware of what this really signifies. It signifies an inner process of combustion, but we must not picture it as being like external combustion. All the processes that take a definite form in the outer world take place also within the human organism, but in a different way. And so it is a fact that the changing course of the year is reflected in these inner processes. The inner process that occurs during high summer is a permeation of the organism by what crudely may be described in the material world as sulfur. When a person lives with the summer sun and its effects, he experiences a sulfurizing process in his physical etheric being. The sulfur that he bears within him as a useful substance has a special importance for him in high summer, quite different from its importance at other seasons. It becomes a kind of combustion process. It is natural for mankind that the sulfur process in us at midsummer should be specially enhanced. Material substances and different beings have secrets not dreamt of by materialistic science. Everything physical, etheric, in us, is thus glowed through at midsummer with inward sulfur fire, to use Jacob Burma's expression. It is a gentle, intimate process, imperceptible to ordinary consciousness. But, as is generally true of other such processes, it has a tremendous decisive significance for events in the cosmos. Although this sulfurizing process in human bodies at midsummer is so mild and gentle and imperceptible to mankind itself, it has a very great importance for the evolution of the cosmos. A great deal happens out there in the cosmos when, in summer, human beings shine inwardly with the sulfur process. It is not only the physically visible glowworms, Johannes Kefferchen, which shine out toward St. John's Day. For other planets, the inner being of mankind then begins to shine, becoming visible as a being of light to the etheric eyes of other planetary beings, EYES. That is the sulfurizing process. At the height of summer, human beings begin to ray out into cosmic space as brightly for other planetary beings as glowworms shine with their light in the meadows at St. John's time. From the standpoint of the cosmos, this is a majestically beautiful sight. For it is in glorious astral light that human beings shine out into the cosmos during high summer. But at the same time, it gives occasion for the aramonic power to draw near to mankind. 
for this power is very closely related to the sulfurizing process in the human organism. We can see how, on the one hand, human beings shine out into the cosmos in the St. John's light, and on the other hand, how the dragon-like serpent form of Araman winds its way among the human beings, shining in the astral light, and tries to ensnare and embrace them, to draw them down into the realm of subconscious sleep and dreams. Then caught in this web of illusion, they would become world dreamers, and in this condition they would be a prey to the Aramanic powers. All this has significance for the cosmos also. And when in high summer, from a particular constellation, meteors fall in great showers of cosmic iron, then this cosmic iron, which carries an especially powerful healing force, is the weapon which the gods bring to bear against Araman, as dragon-like he tries to coil round the shining forms of human beings. The force which falls on the earth in meteoric iron is indeed a cosmic force, whereby the higher gods endeavor to gain a victory over the Aramonic powers when autumn comes on. And this majestic display in cosmic space, when the august meteor showers stream down into human beings shining in the astral light, has its counterpart, so gentle and apparently so small, in a change that occurs in the human blood. This human blood, which is in truth not so material as present-day science imagines, but is permeated throughout by impulses of soul and spirit, is rayed through by the force that is carried as iron into the blood and wages war there on anxiety, fear and hate. The processes set going in every blood corpuscle when the force of iron shoots into it are the same, on a minute human scale, as those which take place when meteors fall in a shining stream through the air. This permeation of human blood by the anxiety-dispelling force of iron drives fear and anxiety out of the blood. And so as the gods with their meteors wage war on the spirit who would like to spread fear over all the earth by way of his coiling serpent form, and they cause iron to irradiate this fear-tainted atmosphere which is at its peak when autumn approaches or when summer wanes. So the same process occurs inwardly in human beings when their blood is permeated with iron. We can understand these things only if on the one hand we understand their inner spiritual significance and on the other we recognize how the sulfur process and the iron process in mankind are connected with corresponding events in the cosmos. A person who looks out into space and sees a shooting star should say to himself with reverence for the gods, quote, what is happening in the great expanse of space has its minute counterpart continuously in myself. Out there are the shooting stars, while in every one of my blood corpuscles iron is taking form. My life is full of shooting stars, miniature shooting stars. Close quote. 
and this inner fall of shooting stars, which in truth signifies the life of the blood, is especially important when autumn approaches, when the sulfur process is at its peak. For when human beings are shining like glowworms in the way I have described, then the counterforce is present also, for millions of tiny meteors are scintillating inwardly in their blood. This is the connection between the inner man and the universe. And then we can see how, especially when autumn is approaching, there is a great raying upward of sulfur from the nerve system toward the brain. One could say that the whole human being can then be seen as a sulfur-illuminated phantom. But raying into this bluish-yellow sulfur atmosphere come the meteor swarms from the blood. That is the other phantom. While the sulfur phantom rises in clouds from the lower part of the human being toward the head, the iron-forming process rays out from his head and pours like a stream of meteors into the life of the blood. Such is the human being when Michaelmas draws near. And we must learn to make conscious use of the meteoric force in our blood. We must learn to keep the Michael festival by making it a festival of fearlessness, a festival of inner strength and initiative, a festival for the commemoration of selfless self-consciousness. Just as at Christmas we celebrate the birth of the Redeemer and at Easter the death and resurrection of the Redeemer, and as at St. John's Tide we celebrate the outpouring of human souls into cosmic space, so at Michaelmas, if the Michael festival is to be rightly understood, we must celebrate what lives spiritually in the sulfurizing and meteorizing process within us and should appear to human consciousness in its whole soul-spiritual significance, especially at Michaelmas. Then a person can say to himself, quote, You will be master of this process, which otherwise takes its natural course outside your consciousness, if, just as you bow down thankfully before the birth of the Redeemer at Christmas and experience Easter with deep inner response, you learn to experience how at this autumn festival of Michael there should grow in you everything that opposes love of ease, opposes anxiety, and encourages the unfolding of inner initiative and free, strong, courageous will. Close quote. The festival of strong will. That is how we should conceive of the Michael festival. If that is done, then if nature knowledge is true, spiritual human self-consciousness, the Michael festival will shine out in its true colors. But before mankind can think of celebrating the Michael festival, there will have to be a renewal in human souls. It is the renewal of our whole soul disposition that should be celebrated at the Michaelmas festival, not as an outward or conventional ceremony, but as a festival that renews the whole inner man. Then out of all I have described, the majestic image of Michael and the dragon will arise once more. It will paint itself out of the cosmos. The dragon paints itself for us 
forming its body out of bluish-yellow sulfur streams. We see it taking shape in shimmering clouds of radiance out of the sulfur vapors, and over the dragon rises the figure of Michael, Michael with his sword. But we shall picture this rightly only if we see the space where Michael displays his power and his lordship over the dragon as filled not with indifferent clouds, but with showers of meteoric iron. These showers take form from the power that streams out from Michael's heart. They fuse into the sword of Michael, who overcomes the dragon with his sword of meteoric iron. If we understand what is happening in the universe and in mankind, then the cosmos itself will paint from out of its own forces. Then the artist does not lay on this or that color arbitrarily, but in harmony with divine powers and with the world that expresses their being, he paints the whole being of Michael and the dragon as it can hover before one. A renewal of the old pictures comes about if one can paint out of direct contemplation of the cosmos. Then the pictures will show what is really there, and not what fanciful individuals may somehow imagine to be a picture of Michael and the dragon. Then human beings will come to understand these things, to reflect on them with understanding, and they will bring mind and feeling and will to meet the autumn in the course of the year. Then at the beginning of autumn, at the Michael festival, the picture of Michael with the dragon will confront us as a stark challenge, a strong spur to action, which must work on us in the midst of the events of our times. And then we shall understand how it points symptomatically to something in which the whole destiny, perhaps indeed the tragedy, of our epoch is being played out. During the last three or four centuries, we have developed a magnificent natural science and a far-reaching technology based on the most widely distributed material to be found on earth. We have learned to make out of iron nearly all the most essential and important things produced by mankind in a materialistic age. In our locomotives, our factories, on all sides we see how we have built up this whole civilization on iron or on steel, which is only iron transformed. And all the uses to which iron is put are a symptomatic indication of how we have built our whole life and outlook out of matter and want to go on doing so. That is, however, a downward leading path. We can rescue ourselves from its impending dangers only if we start to spiritualize life in this very domain, if we penetrate through our environment to the spiritual, if we turn from the iron which is used for making engines and look up again to the meteoric iron which showers down from the cosmos to the earth and is the outer material from which the power of Michael is forged. Human beings must come to see the great significance of the following words, quote, Here on earth, in this epoch of materialism, you have made use of iron in accordance with the insight gained from your observation of matter. Now, 
just as you must transform your vision of matter through the further development of natural science into spiritual science, so must you rise from your former idea of iron to an understanding of meteoric iron, the iron of Michael's sword. And what you do there will make you whole. This is contained in the words, quote, O man, you shape it, iron, to your service. You display it, iron, according to the value of its substance in many of your products. Yet it will only make you whole when it reveals to you the exalted dominion of its spirit. Close quote. That is, the exalted dominion of Michael, with a sword that will weld itself together in cosmic space out of meteoric iron, when our materialistic civilization becomes capable of spiritualizing the power of iron into the power of Michael, Michael iron which gives us self-consciousness in place of mere nature consciousness. You have seen that precisely the most important demand of our time, the Michael demand, is implicit in this inscription, this script contained in the astral light. The end of Lecture 1